talk about this plan of yours. I think it's good, except it sucks. So let me do the plan, and that way it might be really good. Wow. To it's good except it sucks a movie by movie and television series by television series hurtled through the marvel cinematic universe this time we're taking another look at avengers assemble or depending on wherever in the world it is that you're watching it the avengers released in april 2012 when it's safe to say it did slightly better than darling companion I'm Tim Worthington, and I'll have plenty to say about Avengers Assemble shortly. Meanwhile, joining me to give her thoughts on Avengers Assemble is book reviewer Joanne Shepherd. Jo, where can people find you? You can mostly find me on Twitter, where I'm Red Sky at Night, and I also my book reviews blog is breakfastatlibraries.com, but to be honest, you probably won't find a huge amount of interest if your main interest is Marvel films, because I never really talk about that kind of thing. So I don't want to sell myself too much here, so you know, avoid disappointment and don't visit if that's not your thing. Well, maybe you'll get round to doing the Kang Dynasty eventually, but <laughs> before we go any further, Joe, what happens in Avengers Assemble? Asking me to explain the plot of a Marvel film is a bit like one of those sort of TV programmes where they would ask a small child to explain like how income tax works or something and you get kind of a garbled barely recognisable description from them but as far as I'm aware Loki who is the sort of god of mischief mischief seems like quite underplaying the level of his villainy to be honest he does a deal with a sort of mysterious extraterrestrial being called the other in which Loki agrees that he will steal something called the Tesseract in exchange for the other's support in Loki's plan to sort of invade and subjugate Earth. So the Tesseract is this kind of powerful and I think potentially infinite energy source. So it's obviously extremely valuable, but also potentially very dangerous. And Nick Fury, who is the director of S.H.I.E.L.D., he decides that the only people who can foil this plan and recover the Tesseract are the Avengers, who are then sort of brought together by Fury and his agent, Natasha Romanoff, into a kind of superhero supergroup. I would say. Every time I hear the words Avengers Assemble, I hear it in the voice of the guy that used to do the announcements on Gladiators. (laughs) (laughs) Avengers. Okay, well, I'm interested in what the answer of this is going to be. Joe, how much did you know about Captain America, Hawkeye, Black Widow, Thor, Iron Man or the Incredible Hulk before you saw this? Virtually nothing, apart from the Incredible Hulk, because that was the one character that I was kind of really familiar with because I used to watch The Incredible Hulk on TV with Bill Bixby when I was a kid and I really, really liked it. Despite the fact that I was really scared of the transformation scenes in the TV series. It was fine before he was the Hulk. It was fine when he was the Hulk, but it was just that kind of transformation when his sort of trousers would all rip and it looked really uncomfortable and I used to feel really sorry for him. And I used to sort of hide behind the cushion at that bit. So yeah, I knew a bit about the Hulk and I do really like him in this film, but I knew nothing really about any... Well, Thor, I 
I knew a bit about, although more just from mythology than actually from Marvel, to be honest. I didn't really know anything about Captain America or Iron Man. Whenever I hear Iron Man, I always sort of, I always kind of think of the giant robot thing from the Ted Hughes book. The very kind of po-faced book that you always get read to you in assembly at primary school. And read by Tom Baker on Jack and Ori. Nobody remembers that. Yes. So, yeah, that's always what I think of when I hear Iron Man. But I really, really liked that character in this film, I must say. I thought he was terrific. And I think Robert Downey Jr. is excellent as well. I used to really like him when I was, I had a bit of a thing for him when I was a teenager. And then he went off the rails for what seemed like a very long time. But he seems to have recovered from that. And I think he gives a really good performance here. Less keen on Captain America. Found him a bit dull, if I'm being honest. He's a bit Roger Ramjet, isn't he? And I don't really like Chris Evans either because he's just got one of those faces that I kind of, I kind of want to punch for some reason. I mean, that's all on me. He's done nothing wrong. But I just, he sort of grates on me a bit. From what I read as well, I gather that Steve Rogers is actually a bit more interesting in the comics than maybe he is in the film. And I did like the sort of the ongoing reference to sort of other characters collecting trading cards off him and things like that, which I really liked. And he is a good foil, I guess, to Iron Man as well. But yes, I knew very little about any of the characters. I knew nothing about Black Widow although I thought she was excellent and I wish she'd had a bit more to do actually but yeah I came to this pretty much blind to be honest that is all interesting because it's difficult to think now of a time where most of these characters were not really known to the general public at all I mean to the likes of me I mean all of this goes back to as I've mentioned here a couple of times when we moved house when I was five <laughs> and I must have been complaining or something because I was given the comic at very short notice to keep me quiet from the new news agents where we're moving to which had American comics in it and it was given an issue of the Avengers where all these you know I'd seen Captain America and knew who the Hulk was but all these amazing characters I'd never seen before were banding together to fight in that particular issue it was the absorbing man who does turn up as a villain <laughs> in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Had basically he'd been tricked by I think Luke Cage and Iron Fist into because he can take on the properties of anything he touches and they got him into a state where they could basically dismember him and when he was like rubber or something and they spread him about the city but all the parts reconstituted at the dump. And he came back together, so the Avengers had to fight him. But there's this whole world in this comic in that, you know, there's a reference to how he'd got there. There was, it actually opens with Captain Marvel, Carol Danvers, trying to join, but there's a paperwork problem. There was an editorial at the end where it basically said, and if you're wondering why Tony Stark's acting so strange, look out for a sensational new Iron Man series coming soon. And to me, these were, I can't say they were my rock stars, because I had actual rock stars that I'd lost, but characters like this meant so much to me. And then, like you say, it was only really the whole cut of these that was really known to the wider world. And then when Marvel started doing their own films, as we talked about when we talked about the Blade movies, most of their most popular characters at that point were already optioned to other studios. And they had this lot. And it was a gamble starting with an Iron Man film. But that's why I think Robert Downey Jr. worked so well, because he was at the lowest point of his career then. And I think he really found something to identify with in this kind of like broken genius of a child star who'd been lauded so much that the public couldn't see he'd fallen apart. And I think that really connected. And somehow these films all got through. And they'd all been introduced in. Some of them had had their own movies, whereas Black Widow was introduced in Iron Man 2 and was kind of like a supporting character up to that point. Hawkeye was the first incident doing this really brilliant thing where in the first Thor film S.H.I.E.L.D. turned up to take control of the situation and somebody says Barton are you in position and you just see completely unannounced Jeremy Renner snatch up a bow and arrow. Anyone who knows who he is watching that is 
oh my god, Hawkeye. Whereas, you know, other people just think, oh, that's just a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent. But <laughs> by the time of this movie, suddenly these six characters that, like you say, most of them weren't really known at all, can headline one of the biggest movies of that decade, really. Yeah, and I think it's bringing them together that actually makes the film in a way, because even if you don't know those characters very well, as I didn't, I think bringing them together is such a great way of being able to kind of highlight all their kind of individual quirks and characters and kind of characteristics and their different powers and things like that and they kind of play off each other so in that sense it feels like it's greater than the sum of its parts if you see what I mean I'll be completely honest I wasn't expecting to enjoy this film very much and I really really enjoyed it really enjoyed it I thought it was great I think it's a really I think it's a good screenplay and I think it's by and large I think it's a really good cast as well and I found myself really into it and I really like the way the characters play off each other and interact together as well so I think it was a very good idea to bring them all together like that and having now seen the film with all of them I would definitely watch films based around an individual character now definitely well that's one thing I'm wondering is what you made of kind of the soft reboot introductions of them which incidentally also that's the debut of Mark Ruffalo as Bruce Banner because in The Incredible Hulk Ed Norton I got to say that is a decent film but he had too much creative control over it he got unhappy and it just doesn't belong with any of these films at all and he didn't what he tried to do with Bruce Banner as kind of like you know a haunted hunted capable survivalist bloke was good it just didn't fit what people are expecting of Bruce Banner yeah. and the Hulk yeah. and so we get all the characters reintroduced here and I'm just wondering did you feel that, that was sufficient that that connected you with them straight away you know you've got Captain America just punching a punch bag off a wall then looking at a photo <laughs> of Peggy Carter and going gee <laughs> Do you know, I did feel, of all the characters, it was definitely Captain America that I probably connected with the least. But... I did feel that I connected with them quite early on and I think the way that they're sort of set up, the way that they're introduced, it's very clever because their introductions are really minimal but you do get, I felt that I kind of got the essence of them and got sort of a glimpse of their backstory just from that relatively brief soft introduction of them and I did feel like I connected with them and I really liked, obviously I was familiar with the Hulk but I really liked the portrayal of the Hulk in this. Partly because when I was a child and I used to watch the Incredible Hulk on the telly, I always just sort of think like, wow I'd love to be able to turn into the Hulk. <laughs> why, why is this making him sad? I would be brilliant. Own it. Like, own it. And I kind of feel that that sort of does happen a bit in this film, in that there's a bit of redemption for the Hulk at the end because he's able to actually do some good with his Hulkdom, which I really, really liked. I did find it was quite interesting that, he, uh, that Bruce Banner is seemingly a medical doctor, but like also a nuclear physicist. Now, I know a bit about how doctors train, and that seemed unlikely to me. Well, one thing that really struck me watching it back now, and there is kind of a coda, sort of a postscript to this, so I'll be interested to find out your take before we come to that, which is Scarlett Johansson, quite a lot in this, not in a bad way but does sort of land in sexy poses while fighting yeah <laughs> and that didn't feel particularly unusual at the time I don't think it seems at all jarring now it's done the perfectly acceptable way and quite tastefully but it did stand out to me as something that wouldn't be done now and there is a follow on to that so I just wonder what your take on that was yeah I think from my point of view watching a film like this I kind of roll my eyes at that but I also do expect it and kind of see it as part of that whole genre, really. I do remember when I was about 17, 18, I had a boyfriend who was a few years older than me, not 
that much older than me, nothing dodgy or anything. He had worked at Marvel as a sort of, I think, as a sort of general dog's body, I think, as an assistant or doing bits and pieces. And he was a massive comics fan. In fact, he's now like a concept artist, I think, for games and stuff like that. So he still draws in that style now, years later. And at that time, I, when I was sort of 17, 18, I was used to moan about the appearance of women in comics and be like, nobody looks like that. Nobody would have a fight dressed like that. <laughs> so I do kind of... It, is something that I come to expect from that kind of comic book Marvel DC that whole genre I do sort of almost come to expect it and therefore I'm probably don't I mean I notice it but I don't sort of I don't find it strikingly jarring because I'm expecting it I think I think one of the most interesting things about Black Widow in this is that she's the only one not only she's the, the only woman on the team but she's also got no superpowers <laughs> and I thought that seems harsh pit her against like a literal god which is kind of like this isn't fair but she more than holds her own and I think she's great in the role I think Scarlett Johansson is really well cast in that part and she is absolutely stunning I mean she looks amazing on screen she's got an just incredible face and I, I think she's really I think she's great in it but yeah there aren't that many women in this I was very amused that the only other woman I can sort of think of immediately is the S.H.I.E.L.D. agent the actress's name was Kobe Smulders which I just thought that can't be a real name can it? Yeah that's she like sounds a, like how like I met name. your mother that's like a name of a Bond like a Bond girl <laughs> Kobe Smulders yes she does and I also always notice that in films like this whenever and this is by no means unique to this genre but in any kind of action film when women are injured when they have any kind of facial injury it's always just like a little like a really neat little cut probably on their sort of temple or on their kind of cheekbone it's never like a broken nose or anything that would be even remotely <laughs> disfiguring and I always think like I've you know I've had facial injuries I've been smacked in the face and like my nose was like halfway across my face literally <laughs> and I had two massive black eyes and like you know crusting blood all over me and stuff and I just think like how are they getting injured in this really kind of neat and attractive way it's remarkable that is a superpower in itself well in fairness there was the problem that a lot of the female characters they would have considered using were tied up in rights elsewhere and sure, also sure. they did consider using Captain Marvel but with the ongoing storyline they had planned the thought was well she could just stop that she could just punch Thanos <laughs> before he's got all the Infinity Stones and that's that so they held their back as far as they could but the interesting thing about Natasha does progress over the films and you get things like she spends most of Captain America the Winter Soldier on the run in like a baseball cap and a hoodie mm. and she does have interestingly given what you just said she has a scene that where she talks about how she was hit by a stray bullet once and never wears bikinis because of that. Mm. Mm. But when they did the, well, I say the 2021 Black Widow film, it, you know, technically it's from 2019, but <laughs> the world sort of stopped. <laughs> Obviously, she was the executive producer on that. And she talked about how, when they'd done the earlier movies, that was just after her phone hack incident. Ah. Which, looking back now, I think, like many things to do with the internet, that was something we didn't take seriously enough when it first happened. Because yeah. people's reaction was generally a bit, whoops, how embarrassing. We didn't realise what monster was being created. But mm. to her, that was a way of regaining control of the sexualised aspects of her body on her terms. Yeah. And then in Blackwood, itself that brings in Natasha's estranged sister Yelena who they don't call her this as such yet but she's technically white widow she's another defective Russian assassin yeah and she actually berates her for pulling sexy poses for the cameras and says <laughs> why do you always do that and there's a bit where Yelena jumps and lands accidentally in Natasha pose and goes <laughs> shut us so I like that they, even though it wasn't 
that relatively that much of a problem they still addressed it down the line yeah and the other thing is that i do think as a character i thought she was a great character and there's no sense that she isn't incredibly good at what she does and that she's absolutely hard as nails she's you know you would be terrified to come up against her in any kind of fight and i think it's that that sort of the beginning where you think that she's going to be sort of rescued by because she's being held captive and you think she's going to be sort of rescued by someone and actually no she's more than capable of managing that situation herself and to be fair if i was like an international assassin i would also want to look really great while i was doing it i don't see why you can't have both those things I don't see why she'd have to look like, you know, Rosa Klebb. So fair play to her, I say. Now, this is going to be another interesting one because I don't know if you quite know this character's reputation. But what do you make of Hawkeye? I made very little of Hawkeye because I didn't really <laughs> I didn't really understand his backstory. The only thing I kind of found out about him was that it said he works for S.H.I.E.L.D. as a master archer. And I thought, that doesn't seem to me like a thing that a sort of espionage agency would have. <laughs> it's like, it's not 1487. You know, what's he archers? What talking about so i was quite interested in him and i would have really liked to have known a bit more about him and had his character developed more and especially his kind of relationship with other characters and things so i would like to have made more of that character than i did really well what happened was really interesting because hawkeye in the movies was never exactly what you call a fan favorite i think they didn't know what to do with him in a lot of the storylines he does not have a lot to do that's fair i think yeah he has a very particular skill set shall we say yeah and there were things like because they showed you know tried to show characters real lives Hawkeye's got a family of three young children and when they show up you don't have to look forward to back episodes of this to find people saying oh my god when Hawkeye's family show up the whole (laughs) film stops and Jeremy Renner like all the others signed on to do at least one headlining movie and it took long enough for the Black Widow one to happen because there's a whole very weird thing about somebody high up in Disney who was a prominent supporter of a certain American and didn't like how outspoken she was about not my president and so on so (laughs) that took him retiring to get the green light but the Hawkeye one they just didn't know what to do with it because the thinking and from Jeremy Renner himself he's since said is that going to work and so eventually they did a series on Disney Plus with him where it was predicated on the fact that Hawkeye's the least popular Avenger (laughs) nobody really likes him the others won't really help him out and so when he has to because it's a brilliant kind of Christmas action comedy serial it's so funny it's so exciting but they based it on the fact that he had to turn for help to Kate Bishop who's a younger champion archer who they actually explored this in a flashback she was a little girl when the invasion of New York happened and she watched him and thought he's my favourite whereas everyone else was making Iron Man masks and so on and she learned to be an archer and also fans and cosplayers who do battle reenactments who help him strategically and it works because of that because they've taken the fact that he hadn't quite worked in the movies to have him on the back foot that really succeeds because of that yeah I can completely see how that would work with him as kind of the sort of the cult favourite the one that people like because no one else likes him if you see what I mean you know the one who's if you're attracted to the sort of the character that's kind of a bit of an outsider lurking on the edge that's underappreciated almost like the hipster's avenger guys all over the place Agent Romanoff you miss me? Make a move, reindeer games. 
I also think it's quite hard for him because this is a film with an all-star cast, basically, isn't it? And you don't get that many really big all-star cast films these days. It reminded me a bit of when, when like, in the 70s when you'd watch sort of Death on the Nile at Christmas and literally everyone in it would be a massive, <laughs> a massive Hollywood star, even if they only had like six lines. And you could like Betty Davis and people like that would crop up. And you think, Christ, what they, what's she doing in this? So it's a bit like that in that everyone is a massive name. And then Jeremy Renner, like I know, I know him, I've seen him in other things, but I think of him as much more of a sort of character actor rather than a big star. And I think it's quite hard for him not to be overshadowed, not because he's not a good actor, because I think he is, I think he's great, but I think he's kind of overshadowed by the sort of star quality of the people around him, I think, who you sort of just tend to find yourself looking at just because they're, you know, the most famous actors in the world kind of thing. So I think he suffers a bit because of that, through no fault of his own either, because as I say, I, I think his performance is fine, and I do think he's a good actor. So I can imagine that he would be much more engaging without the distraction of the other Avengers around him, actually, if you see what I mean. I will say a couple of words in defence of Captain America in that you are right, in this film he's very austere. The line that really stands out to me, and not in a particularly good way, is when he says, there's only one god, Marv, and I'm fairly sure he doesn't dress like that. <laughs> They really are overplaying the man out of time thing there. But equally, you do get when they try to explain Bruce Banner to him and they say the guy's like a Stephen Hawking and they get a blank look and say, a real smart guy. <laughs> and the, also when he gets the reference to flying monkeys yeah. in the middle of all the other yes. pop But they do develop him in time because he becomes more used to the modern world as it goes on. Yeah. There's a great bit in Captain America, The Winter Soldier, where he's got a little book where he writes down things that he thinks sound interesting that people mention. It's got a list that's like says Berlin Wall up and down, Nirvana brackets band and so on. <laughs> So and, you know, he things. starts dating and things later on but you know yeah. ultimately it's just that he loved Peggy and he was taken away from her that becomes his main motivation is that he can never be truly happy in the present because it isn't what he found in life yeah I do get that and I think again I think because this is such an ensemble piece you don't get time really to look into the sort of the depth of the characters as much as you would if they were the lead as I say I just found him a little bit dull in this but I can see I think the sort of man out of time element is the most interesting thing about him actually and as I say from the little bits that I sort of picked up from just briefly reading about the character it sounds like the character in the comics does have a lot more depth and is more interesting and does have some more sort of interesting quirks to him than perhaps he does in this film despite the fact that he was my least favourite character I would still probably be interested in knowing more about him which is a real plus point I think that says a lot about the quality of the film I think. And there's also the two characters that in my experience turned out to be everyone's favourite who hadn't been familiar with anything beforehand <laughs> which is Thor and Loki now I love you referring to Loki's mastery of mischief because this is so weird just before the whole thing with Trump running for president happened they did a Loki series in the comics called Vote Loki where he runs for the presidency just for a laugh and then he finds out that when everybody just does what he wants because he's the president it's got no appeal for him and you know that's such a be careful what you wish for parable but I think Tom Hiddleston and Chris Hemsworth are so I mean admittedly Kenneth Branagh cast them in the original Thor film mm. but they're so perfectly cast they just inhabit those roles so brilliantly and their interactions with each other are never less than hilarious. Yeah, I would completely agree. And remarkably, 
as well for me because I normally really, really dislike Tom Hiddleston. And I think this is probably the only role I've seen him in where I found him incredibly convincing, certainly more convincing than he was in his role as Taylor Swift's boyfriend. But I just found him, I think he was so well cast in this and really had a handle on that character. And his kind of interactions with Chris Hemsworth of Thor as well just felt really convincing to me. And I think Hemsworth is great. I think he's, again, perfectly cast, really, really good in that role. And I also quite liked the fact that the other characters kind of acknowledged the sort of slightly pompous way that Thor and Loki speak to each other is because they've got that kind of almost that sort of high fantasy style of dialogue that kind of old-fashioned epic fantasy and I quite like the fact that that was acknowledged by other characters in the film like why are you talking about this Don't mother know thou were her drapes <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I really like that. And I think they're really good on screen together. And I completely believed in that classic villain thing of Loki being a slightly bitter kind of outcast, someone who was originally part of something and then through his own fault dropped out of that and was disgraced and therefore is going to make the most of that and is intent on being a villain. It almost goes back to the whole thing of Satan as a fallen angel, you know, in Paradise Lost. It's that archetypal villain backstory. And I think Hiddleston is really convincing in that. And I did... I completely believed in him as a character. So he's redeemed himself in my eyes, as I say, because I wasn't a fan before. The only thing I would say about Loki is that he really shouldn't put on that ridiculous helmet with the massive horns because he just looks ridiculous. <laughs> he, looks, he looks much more like, you look absurd now. You were much more intimidating when it was just your normal face. Take it off. You look ridiculous. <laughs> Grow up. So, yeah, I sort of thought like, oh, no, you've ruined it now. You've gone too far. This isn't good. But yeah, I think they're both great. And there's a real kind of, there's some Something sort of weirdly lovable about Thor in this as well, I think. I think on the face of it, he could be a very sort of humorless and one-dimensional character, really. But I think there's a really interesting kind of warmth to it that Hemsworth brings. And I don't quite know how he does it. It's hard to put my finger on what that is, but I just think he's really well cast in the role. And yeah, him and Hiddleston together, brilliant, really good. And that does lead into the one really interesting thing about this that will mean nothing to anyone who's ever read the comics. <laughs> it kind of mirrors the Avengers where originally brought together to fight Loki mm. but they weren't initially brought together by S.H.I.E.L.D. they were brought together ah. by Rick Jones who's kind of like a what would now be I don't know what you would have called him in the 60s but like a hacktivist now okay who helped out various superheroes particularly used to S.H.I.E.L.D. Bruce Banner a lot and get him food and get him from place to place safely when the Hulk was defeated by Loki he like sent out covert radio messages to every superhero he could think of Rick Jones was originally the script for The Incredible Hulk and Ed Norton wrote him out. Nobody oh. really knows why. And hmm. since then there was kind of a, because that was a co-production with Universal, kind of rights complication with Rick Jones, who is yet to appear despite being one of the key Marvel characters. I mean, they will have to bring him in eventually, but it's a sore point with a lot of comics fans that Paul Rob Rick hasn't had this moment in the spotlight <laughs> yet. If ever a character was tailor-made for these times, it's someone that goes around covertly spying on the government through electronic devices. Yeah, exactly. And also in this film as well, that sort of almost like kind of counterculture, as you say, hacktivist, vestigative kind of element really fits with the fact that in this film, it's actually the World Security Council who nearly actually put an end to millions of lives when they decide that they're going to launch a nuclear missile at Manhattan. And I think having a character who was exactly the kind of person that would want 
want to expose that kind of thing and spy on that kind of thing would be really interesting in this. Well, you've now got me wondering if there was an earlier draft where he did just that before they realised yeah. they could use him. Yeah. yeah. I've, I've never thought about that because the nuclear strike does almost seem to come out of nowhere. It really That's does. That's my one criticism yeah. of the whole movie is even at the time I thought, what? Where did that come from? <laughs> Yeah, let's counter this invasion of the world by um, wiping out most of New York. Like, doesn't seem quite... Yeah, it seemed like an odd decision to me. And also, I was a bit thrown by the fact that the kind of... I think she was sort of the leader of the World Security Council was Jenny Akata. I thought, like, she's just one of the railway children. Well, she could stop this just by waving a red petticoat at them. She gets half a punch-up in the later <laughs> film without giving anything away. Oh, brilliant. Good honour. Well done, Jenny. So, yeah, I found the whole thing with the council a bit odd and a bit kind of shoehorned in. And as I say, it would make a lot of sense if the Rick Jones character as you describe him was in this film. I also sort of thought that if the World Security Council were going to do that they probably shouldn't have told Nick Fury that they were about to do it because it was pretty obvious that he wouldn't stand for that I think. What is very pleasing though about the big storyline in retrospect is that it didn't end up like you know like in other franchises you'll get things like people say woo those Transformers made a big mess last time I hope they don't come back or you know (laughs) they just don't refer to things that happened previously at all. No. In this, the fact that New York was almost reduced to rubble yeah. even before they threatened to nuke it, it didn't just recur in all of the movies that followed. The things like the TV shows they did based on the Defenders, who were Luke Cage, The Punisher, Iron Fist, Jessica Jones, and Daredevil. The whole introduction then was predicated on the fact that organised crime had thrived yeah. in like the chaos that had been left behind. And as well, I don't think they really knew at first what they were doing with Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. That first series is a bit directionless, bit uneven but one of the better episodes is a Chitauri helmet turns up in the rubble and they have to retrieve it and Agent Simmons catches some kind of alien virus from it and they don't know what to do so you've got this poor nerdy English girl scientist locked in like a glass room thinking I'm going to die they don't know what of and they're all trying to examine this helmet without touching it they did refer back to it in the Hawkeye series in Rogers the Captain America musical Hawkeye (laughs) attends the premiere and see watching Save the City the song and dance routine based on the Avengers Assemble <laughs> looking very very annoyed and there's a brilliant thing in that of in the very first Avengers comic Ant-Man and the Wasp actually were part of the action they were part of the original Avengers team but they couldn't use them at that point and they appear in the musical and Clint gets really annoyed and says that guy wasn't even there so that's a lovely nod to put in but they have constantly referred back to this monolithic event and I think that was I don't know if saying it was something new is the right word because you know other things have done that in the past you know but it's not something you've really got in blockbuster franchises which tend to reset at the start of each one yeah absolutely I find that really interesting because like you say normally it is just that sort of suspension of disbelief where you're expected to believe that this happened and it was fine and you think in the real world if that much of New York had been obliterated the number of people that have been killed there'd be a massive memorial it'll be like ground zero it would have just a devastating impact that would go on for years and years and years and obviously that's not it's not the most cheerful of topics but it is I think it has to be acknowledged and I think it's quite clever that they've acknowledged it because I think it does make it feel more like a world that you could inhabit yourself if you see what I mean rather than something that feels entirely kind of other where terrible things happen and then everybody's fine sort of thing you know so yeah that is very interesting I think it's interesting that they did that I will say as well that one thing that's always worth highlighting for anyone who is completely new to not just this but to any of the entire series is how much great dialogue there is and on the one hand you've got moments
looks like there's when Loki's trying to get the people to kneel and there's the you know what's obviously supposed to be a Holocaust survivor stands up and says not to men like you and you know there's Captain America saying last time I saw a guy talking down to a lot of people we ended up kind of disagreeing but there's so <laughs> many I suppose zingers as well like we need to plan the attack I have a plan attack there's a Hulk saying puny god to Loki <laughs> I just think that's really what makes it. They've somehow, and again, this is something that happens very often, got the right balance between action and dialogue. Yeah, I think so, definitely. It's written by Joss Whedon, isn't it? I think you can kind of tell. Now, as far as I'm aware, Joss Whedon is a bit of a knobhead, but he is very good at what he does, and I think he's great at writing this sort of thing. And yeah, I think the dialogue is really sharp and snappy. And also, I think there are some really clever, quite self-referential lines that acknowledge the strangeness of the world that we're looking looking into there are bits where you think like well that's weird but then actually it's kind of acknowledged that it's a bit odd to them as well (laughs) they also think that some of the things that are happening are quite strange or make no sense or are ridiculous such as the acknowledgement of the way that Thor and Loki speak is nothing like the way the other characters speak I think things like that are quite clever and quite self-referential and sort of what I would expect from Joss Whedon really I do think it's a great screenplay which I wasn't expecting I'll be honest not having seen the two Blade films three Blade films sorry I've got to admit none of them have anything on let me know if real power wants a magazine or something. <laughs> There's nothing in any of those three films that even comes close to that. I also really like the bit at the end where they were in the kebab shop. Like after the credits, it just really made me laugh. But I did think as well, how the hell has Tony Stark never had a kebab? Americans are wild, aren't they? Never had a Donna kebab? What's that about? <laughs> you must have had a kebab, mate. You've never lived. You might be a millionaire in your sparkly skyscraper, but you've never had a bloody kebab. Dear, oh dear. That was a fantastic code. And it also later provided an explanation for the one character introduced so far who doesn't show up in this. James Rhodes, War Machine, played by Don Cheadle, who basically, War Machine is an Iron Man suit that was built for the military. So he wouldn't be involved in this because he'd be under military orders. He'd probably be helping to launch the nuke, actually. (laughs) But they published a tie-in comic where War Machine was sent out to the Middle East on a mission against the Ten Rings, who were a kind of Marvel terrorist organisation. And he came back to find he'd missed everything but yeah they had some chips left over that you could have (laughs) see I love things like that I think things like that are brilliant I really like that element of sort of humour and it's quite sort of sly humour as well which I really like I think it's really I think it's great it's got so much more having watched the three Blade films which I did enjoy well not Blade Trinity that was terrible but I did enjoy the other two I do think that yeah this one has just got so much more humour and warmth and wit about it that I really appreciated and it does make it feel it it meant that you can engage a lot more with the characters than I had expected to because they're more than just kind of ciphers for a particular superpower if you see what I mean I have to say though whenever I see any films like this when they're in any of the kind of shield facilities and it always looks a bit like a sort of cross between the Death Star and a nuclear power station and there's lots of computers that all make for some reason a little bleeping sound whenever a menu pops up in a way that no computer actually does (laughs) I always sort of think I really want to see like their canteen (laughs) and like where they're all sleeping I'd I'd quite like to see their like little bedrooms and things because I'm always I want a little bit more of an insight into their sort of more into their domestic arrangements I don't know why I was always quite fascinated by things like that that does actually come up in some of the later movies does it good you do meet Thor's flatmate Daryl and people (laughs) like that 
and find out that Captain America, can you guess what he does at home? He listens to 40s records and looks at pictures of Peggy and size. Oh, of course he does. Of course he does. Poor old Captain America. He just, he needs a bit more about him, I think. We've also got to mention the other post credit scene, which I'm wondering, even with your overall lack of knowledge about the whole proceedings, if you kind of knew who that was and what was going on. Not really, but I kind of had a vague sense of the general vibe, but not I, I, in detail, I had no real clue what was going on there. I thought, like, I'm not going to recognise these characters particularly, but I could see where it was kind of going, if you see what I mean. Yeah, that was the reveal of Thanos, who's basically a big bad alien whose one aim in life is to collect all of the Infinity Stones, including the Tesseract and the one that's in Loki's staff, so oh, that he can build the right. Infinity Gauntlet and reduce, basically, existence of the universe by 50%, which he thinks will be an opportunity to rebuild so that everyone, you know, nobody goes hungry, nobody goes disadvantaged. That's one of those fascinating moral questions that pose with the villains, but up to that point, there'd been no indication that there was a bigger story beyond this team-up movie. I remember thinking, you know, I was absolutely staggered that they were bringing this obscure villain, even by comic standards, into it, but we're now at the stage where people mention Thanos in casual conversation. They'll mention people like Groot and so on. And a while back, my mother said to me, have you been to see that girl you used to like yet? And I spent about 15 minutes thinking, what? <laughs> What? Who is she trying to persuade me to pick things up with and why? And I realised she meant Black Widow had just come out. <laughs> but it's odd that, you know, something that even I thought at the time, how many people are going to understand who that is? Things like that have now become part of general discourse, really. Yeah, because I didn't recognise that character, but I know of Thanos, and I also know about Thanos' notion to sort of obliterate a big chunk of the world in order to make the remaining half a nicer place. And I also think that, I think it's brilliant that they're making so much of that character, because I think that it's such an interesting concept and such an interesting dilemma, in that it's not just a villain just Oh, I will destroy the world. But well, no, he's got a motive, and you can kind of see where he's coming from. He's just going about it in very much the wrong way. So there is a whole sort of interesting moral, ethical question that you can ask with that character. So I think it's brilliant. I'm not surprised that that character has become as big as it now is, because I think that whole premise is just such a fantastic premise for a film. It's the sort of thing that you could have endless discussion about. So yeah, so even though, like, I, however, watching that film would not have pick that up but I can imagine that if you were a big Marvel fan and you saw that film for the first time you would be absolutely hopping up and down in your seat with excitement when that scene came on I can't comment on whether I actually did that or not did you physically hop <laughs> I don't know there may be witnesses who'll differ on that <laughs> I guess the only character that we haven't actually talked about, really, is Nick Fury. I think Samuel L. Jackson is terrific in this. I thought he was great. I think he's so well cast, and I just think he gives a really charismatic but seemingly sort of effortless performance. So he looks like he just did everything in one take in this. I was also quite interested in that character. I would like to have known a bit more about his backstory, actually. Least of all, like, how does someone like that end up being called Nick? That's like a middle management accountant's name, isn't it, Nick? It's like... It's like, you're much too cool to be called Nick. Like, you know. So, yeah, I really like his character and I would like to have seen a lot more of him. I would like to see more of his kind of inner workings of his kind of thought processes and things and the moral dilemmas that he faced. For example, with the whole Let's Bob Manhattan dilemma and things like that. So I think he's really good. Really, really good. Well, again, they do go into that down the line, particularly in Captain Marvel, where you do find out how he lost his eye. Okay. It's not what anyone thinks. <laughs> But yeah, I 
think he's terrific in it. And do you know who had previously played Nick Fury? Because there were a couple of previous attempts at getting a Marvel franchise going, like the Hulk series that you mentioned. They did other series like Spider-Man and Doctor Strange that were supposed to cross over and they never quite did. In the 80s, although this one, because of various delays that come out to the 90s, they tried doing films with a couple of characters. There was a Nick Fury film that ended up as a TV movie. Do you know who played him? No, is it someone awful? No, it's someone brilliant, David Hasselhoff. Oh, oh my God. Who looks exactly like he did in the comics. That Genuinely, the original comic strip drawing could have been modelled after him, but his interpretation is very different to Samuel L. Jackson's. I can imagine that it would have been. I mean, when you, when you say that he looks exactly like he did in the comics, I mean, that is what Hasselhoff looks like, isn't it? He does look like a drawing from a comic. That's exactly... that. He's got like that sort of face, like doesn't look like a real person's face. So, yeah, oh, I mean, fair play, fair play to Hasselhoff. But I think I prefer, I think I find Samuel L. Jackson easier to take seriously. I enjoy a character with an eye patch, I have to say. That always had interest for me, an eye patch. You know, a one-eyed character always goes down well. There are no rubbish one-eyed characters. They're all excellent. <laughs> All you need, you need one eye or some sort of like prosthetic limb. You want a peg leg, a mechanical hand, a scary mechanical hand. Any of those things always make for an excellent character. In That's view. just a pirate. No, not with a mechanical hand. You want characters like that. They're always excellent. Okay, there's only one thing left for me to ask now. Joe, if you had a cube containing a gemstone that could manipulate all physical dimensions, what would you use it for? Oh, God, that's a bit of a big question, isn't it? Manipulate all physical dimensions. Hmm. I can only think of evil uses. (laughs) I can't think of anything that will be for the greater good. Isn't that terrible? I'd probably make travel a lot easier and reduce everyone's carbon footprint. And maybe also, yeah, some kind of energy saving, I think. Looking at my projected gas bill, I think. Manipulate the pipelines so that they don't go directly across Russia or something like that. I don't know. It's quite a boring answer. It's a more profound answer than I would have given, which would have been, I used to shrink Donald Trump. It would just be going, (laughs) look at me, folks. I'm the shrinking as ever. You won't find anyone more shrinked than me. We could could shrink him and you could sort of keep him in a it'd be like so he'd be really tiny and you could just kind of like keep him in a box like in the Indian in the cupboard you could be like a tiny little like a tiny little live living action figure of him you could just shove away when you got bored with it quite good I actually don't have anything I can add to that <laughs> Joe thank you and Excelsior cheers thanks very much thanks for having me If you've enjoyed this, don't forget you can find more editions of It's Good Except It Sucks and plenty more besides, including details on my book Can't Help Thinking About Me at timworthington.org.